You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. Welcome to our series through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're calling it Dirty Church. I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, and get ready to study God's Word together. great to see you or be seen by you anyway. It's great to have the rest of our campuses uh, join us. I hope you guys are doing great in the snow all across Chicagoland. And those of you online staying at home, good for you. I'm kidding. You should be here. We're having a great time here. It's great to be back here in Elgin. Haven't been here for a little while, and I'm always excited when I get a chance to be here in, in, uh, in Elgin. Um, Before we study God's Word today, one of the things I want to do is I want to uh, just make you aware that today is a Sanctity of Life Sunday. It's a day that uh, pastors and church leaders decided a long time ago that they were going to uh, set aside to celebrate um, life, quite honestly, and to push back against the culture of death that seems to be pervading our society these days. Um, We don't get very political here at Harvest. Uh, I really don't care who you vote for, but there are certain issues that are really clear in Scripture. Uh, The Bible says that we are uh, wonderfully made and that the Lord has known us from our mother's womb. He's knit us together there. And so that kind of language, sir, seems to indicate that the Lord has a dear love for what we call the fetus, but what is really a baby. And so we want to be people who promote life, who love life. I know there's lots of different policies that might, you might have a different opinion about policy than somebody else does, but I think we can all get together as Christian brothers and sisters and say that we want to be about life in the womb, we want to be about life after the womb, we want to be about life when people are old, we want to be about life, about life, but about life, because our God is a God of life. And so uh, I want to pray for our country, I want to also pray for um, all of the issues around this. You, you, you know them all. There's all sorts of different people who are involved, you know, from the mother who's suffering with the challenge of thinking about her future, uh, to the doctors, to the, all the politics, all this stuff. So let me pray for all of this for a few minutes. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I'm, I'm thankful that your church gathers every week. Lord, I'm reminded that uh, if heaven is real, if the kingdom of God is real, then this is the most important meeting that's happening on earth today. It's happening in lots of different locales all over the place, but when your people gather, this is the outpost of the kingdom of God, and we get to proclaim the truths and beauties of our king. One of those truths and beauties, Lord, is... uh, Resurrection life is the valuing of life. Uh, Satan is the God of death. And so, Father, we want to uh, push back against that in prayer. We want to appeal to you, Lord, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done, in particular as it pertains to the issue of abortion. Father, I pray for all of the dear young women or even older women who, um, if either had an abortion or considering an abortion, Father, would you be very near to them? Would you come into their lives and use different people, Father, to remind them, um, 
remind them of uh, the beauty, perhaps, of the future and that they don't know all the things that are going to be happening in the days ahead. And perhaps even in this moment, even today, Father, you would turn some of them back from some of the plans that they have. I pray for the little babies, uh, Father, who uh, are in harm's way. Increasingly, it seems to be not just in the womb, but even immediately after that. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would protect them and that you would send your angels to guard over them. We pray for the doctors who have to make difficult decisions, Lord, about whether they're going to take a stand on uh, what is true and right and good. I pray, Lord, that they have courage and a backbone and a willingness, Father, to stand against the tide and to use their position and influence, Father, to make a difference. I pray for the politicians, all of them, Father, from our president all the way down to our local counselors, Lord. I pray that your spirit would come, convict them where they need it, Father, encourage them where they need it. But we pray again that your kingdom would come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, Father, we we hand these things over to you. We are frequently reminded of our inability to um, change all of these things. It seems like such a big issue and uh, so much pushback in our culture and things. But, Father, you, you change hearts and minds. You recreate people. You shine light into their darkness, Father. And we pray, Lord, that you would do that ultimately and that a, a great move of the Spirit would convert the hearts of so many people and that in line with that conversion, in line with that insight into the kingdom of God, they would change their values and attitudes toward this issue and that we might even see in our day, Father, a great revival that is played out, Father, in the protection of life. So we're thankful for this time. We're thankful that we get to study your word together. We ask that you would bless it now in Jesus' name. I don't usually talk about my wife, um, mostly because she doesn't like it when I talk about her. Uh, I'm not going to be the typical pastor who stands up and says, I'm going to tell you about my smoking hot wife, which seems to be something that lots and lots of young pastors say these days. You know, when you get married, one of the, you know, you're in love and you get married and there are particular character traits or physical traits that draw you to your spouse. And then as you've been married, you start to realize that uh, you didn't, you saw the tip of the iceberg when it came to some of their phenomenal traits, but as you've gotten to know them better, you realize how deep that beauty goes. Uh, one of those things in my wife is what I would call that she's a gamer. Now, I, many of you hear that and going like, she likes Call of Duty? No, she doesn't play Call of Duty. I, that's a word that used to, when I was young, we used to use that to, to talk about somebody who was willing you're, you're a gamer, right? You're not the person who wants to sit on the bench. You're the person who wants to be in the game, competing and, and, and pressing forward when, you know, maybe other people shy away. My wife is an, a remarkable gamer. I think it's probably partly due to the fact that she was born in Japan um, to missionaries there. If you've ever seen my wife, she's about, you know, five foot four and really, really blonde from Norwegian descent. You know, your typical Japanese woman. It's fun. We go through border crossings, and they're like, you, you were born in Japan? That's a lie. <laughs> no, I really was. To, to missionaries, and I think her, she grew up in a family that was committed to doing whatever it took to, you know, whatever you needed to give up for the gospel, you did. Her dad was a pastor for lots and lots of years. They gave up all sorts of things, comforts and money and privilege and all sorts of things in order to proclaim the gospel. And that somehow, I think, seeped deeply into my into my wife. 
Not, not early on, because she said in response to, I think, a lot of that, she said early that she didn't want to marry a pastor, which I assured her I never wanted to be. Uh, I said, well, a lawyer, or a, you know, maybe professor, and she's like, all of that is fine, as long as it's not missionary or pastor, right? We want to live, we want to live near family, we want to, you know, do the things that maybe she didn't have a chance to do when she was young. The Lord, of course, had had a different opinion. Ladies, don't ever say that in your life. I don't want to marry a, uh, don't, you know, you can go the other way. Lord, I don't want to every mar- ever marry a very wealthy man. You know, like, <laughs> you'll be good. I remember calling her, uh, became a youth pastor, and uh, while I was there, I decided I want to go to a seminary, and I remember calling her from Dallas, Texas, at the airport in Dallas-Fort Worth, and I called her. She was in Europe at the time uh, with her sister, helping out with her sister's children. And I called her on the phone and I said, I think we should go to Dallas Theological Seminary. Now she'd never been to Dallas, never, not once. Didn't know much about it at all, but her first words out of her mouth was, okay. Yeah, she's a gamer. Okay. Like if that's where the Lord is calling us, we're gonna go and do that. And that meant of course that we were gonna leave behind her family and the hopes of, you know, living nearby and all those sorts of things, moved to Texas, perhaps with a view of moving back, but the way that the Lord did it, um, we ended up moving to New Zealand twice. The first time we went, I went to be a professor at a Bible college. We sold everything we had, moved away from her family again, and moved over, uh, overseas. We didn't know anybody there. Nobody there. Uh, We arrived there. The school was getting started. We were there for a couple of years, and I just had a heart. The Lord moved in my heart that I I should be in pastoral ministry. And so we sold everything that we had bought in New Zealand and moved back to the United States, bought a bunch of stuff to only nine months later sell all of the stuff that we bought, leave her parents again, move back to New Zealand, a different part of New Zealand where we knew one person this time, sell all of it again when we moved away from there back to Canada. And for all our time in Canada, she had to deal with the border, which was her, the bane of her existence. Didn't like going through the Canadian border. She felt like they were always trying to attack her or these sorts of things. It didn't matter. Uh, it was always lines or these things. It was a barrier to get to her, her parents. I, I, I cannot tell you how many things she has had to give up in order to serve Jesus. It really became apparent to me or became in stark contrast to me when we were actually, when I had come back the first time from New Zealand and I was applying for different uh, ministry positions in the States and we almost took a position in San Jose, California as an associate pastor. And we were sitting with the elder board of that church uh, and the pastor was there and he was talking about his heart to go and plant a church, you know, an hour south in a new city and all of the great things that would be, that, you know, like he talked up, I'm, I really, my heart is to go and to serve Jesus and, you know, leave behind this so that we can be on the frontiers of the mission of God. And right at the end of what he was saying, his wife broke in and said, send me a postcard. I mean, I, I giggled a little bit. Everybody else did. She said, no, I'm serious. You send me a postcard. I'm very happy. This is the best house I've ever had. And my family's nearby and all these things. Anyway, we got in the car afterwards and my wife had a chance. My wife is the sweetest person you'll ever meet in your entire life. And she sat next to me. She said, how can that woman ever say that? How can you serve Jesus and not have a heart to go and see the gospel 
proclaimed. I don't, I don't understand. What? It's just your house. Who cares about your house? There are other houses. The Lord will provide other family. He always has for us, Jeff. I'm like, who are you? All right, you know. She's a glowing example of a person willing to sacrifice whatever's necessary so that people can hear the gospel. People don't move when they're 48 years old to Chicago. I'm sorry to tell you that. It's just not something they do. But my wife's like, okay, let's go to Chicago. I bring all of that up because the Apostle Paul pretty much, you say, well, you're kind of bragging. Well, that's kind of what Paul does in this passage, quite honestly. He says, you want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus? You want to know what it looks like and to interact with the people around you, like in terms of those who are other Christians and the mission of God? Do you know what it's going to take? Or what should be your priority? The gospel should be your priority. Your right should not be your priority. Sacrificial love is the defining characteristic of Christian people. And I'm a Christian, says Paul. And so I sacrifice. This is a great little passage of scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. We're only going to go to verse 23 as we study it in the next few minutes. And the way I want to do that is I want to actually just go through the passage with you for just walk through the passage, show you in the context of his day and stuff like that, you know, what exactly he's talking about. And then I want to give you three applications at the end, okay? So the passage itself and then three applications. Here's 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. Paul writes, uh, for... Though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Whenever you see a sentence beginning with that, this is an explanatory for. In other words, you need to say, wait a minute, this is linked to something that came before. So this is part of an argument that's already been made. So you're not really in tune with what he's trying to say unless you go back and you start thinking about what the argument was that he was trying to make. This whole passage is basically been brought up by the Corinthians who had a problem. And the problem was that they were uh, fighting about whether people should eat meat sacrificed to idols or not. Now, that's not a problem you and I have, usually. But we have other problems, right? We have other problems about the church. We fight about whether or not you should go to yoga. We fight about whether or not you should vote this way. We fight all, about all sorts of things. So we can understand what it's like to be in these kinds of fights. And so Paul comes along, he says, all right, when it comes to this issue, here's what you need to do. The problem was that they were these elitists, all right? The people who thought that they knew better and they did know better. They had the right attitude about God and the world, which was, there is only one God. So you can go and play your little idol games over here and go and worship and hand oranges to those gods or sacrifice some meat to the god. You're sacrificing the meat to nothing. So we know now that we've come away from that. We know now that all of that is just rubbish. It's just dumb. So let's just eat whatever we want, man. In fact, if you don't eat whatever you want, you're not acting in line with the true knowledge you should have. What's wrong with you? You don't know this? 
So they were even dragging along the people who were like, I don't know about that. Ooh, I feel a little wrong because I just came away from eating this meat like yesterday. I turned to Christ and that's what we used to do to worship the other God. And now you're saying I should go back? And yes, that's exactly. Come here, give me your hand. And you go back and they start eating meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul's like, what are you doing? Do do you not understand? These people are not where you are. You don't have to start where people are, not where you think they ought to be. So stop throwing things down in front of them, a barriers to them following Jesus. They'll get it eventually. But you don't need to drag them through these situations where their conscience, conscience can get defiled. And so in, go back to 1 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Paul says, however, when he describes these people, these elitists who have knowledge, he said, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol. We know it's not really offered to an idol, but they think it is. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food's not going to commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. This is not that big a deal, people. You don't need to draw lines in the sand and, you know, drag people's conscience through the mud so that they eat what? A steak? What are we, we're doing this over a steak? But take care that this right, that you have to eat whatever, does not somehow become, there's the word, a stumbling block to the weak. Stumbling block, right? You throw things down so that the person behind you, you know, can't catch you. It's like the marbles on the ground. Home alone. Whoop. If you are dragging people, like you're just constantly throwing stumbling blocks before them and the gospel of Jesus, between them and following him. Let me give you an example, says Paul. I'm an example, he says, about what it looks like to give up your rights for the sake of others. We have a right, he says, basically, to ask you to pay us for preaching the gospel. We we should be able to earn a living from the gospel. But we haven't, he says. Me and Barnabas, when we came to you, we didn't do that. Other apostles and stuff, they do that. We didn't. And the reason we didn't do it is because in your culture, and this was the case, there are these traveling teachers who come in and say whatever they want to say, whatever they say at a dinner party, and you have to give them, you know, a free will offering, and they get lots and lots of money, and they get rich, and everyone realizes that they only talk the way they talk in order to get the money. And we didn't want you to feel that way. I didn't want to walk into the church, start saying this sort of stuff, and say, now give me money, and you'd be thinking in your head, hmm, I wonder if he's doing this for the money. He wears nice clothes. Don't we have a right to take along a believing wife? In fact, they were, we should be able to pay for me and not just me, but a wife. But I, don't, I haven't taken along. We don't we have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Peter, Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? We should get money for preaching the gospel. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. 
But we endure anything rather than, there's the word again, put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. If you're going to think that I'm in it for the money, I don't want your money. I'm willing to sacrifice, says Paul, all the money and go make a pittance as a tent maker so that when I proclaim the gospel to you, you're like, oh, he's doing this because he cares about the thing he's saying. Four, that's our passage. So what he does is he's dealing with a situation, gives an example in his own life, you know, zeroes in on it, and then he pulls back and he gives the general statement. Here's the principle, he says. When it comes to interacting with other people and putting obstacles in their way, here's the rule. Though I'm free from all, I've made myself a... That word is actually slave in Greek, doulos. I have made myself a slave of all that I might win more of them. I have all the rights to act in a particular way, but I am willing to forego all of those rights and become an absolute slave to all the people around me so that the gospel can be heard. Everything is about the gospel. Which is what, of course, he says here. This is what Jesus did, isn't it not? You think about the image that's being played on here. Uh, I give up my rights in order... uh, that I, and I start from being at a high level, give up my rights to the lowest level so that people can have access to God. I'm, that sounds like Christmas to me. Like that, that's, isn't that what Jesus did in Philippians 2? Paul himself wrote it. He said, let each of you not, look on to, uh, not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to. He wasn't up in heaven holding on to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you know, Trinitarian love, and nobody, nobody, he's not going to go and sacrifice at all. He did not count equality with God such a thing to be held on to, but instead he emptied himself. How? Well, by taking the form of a, what's that word? It's the word slave. But taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even the worst kind of most shocking, embarrassing kind of death. The mighty God is born in a manger, lives his life without a place to lay his head, and at the end of it, he is crucified by the Roman government on a street where people can spit on him while he's defecating himself. Why? That you might know the gospel of Jesus, right? He who was rich became poor that you might become rich. So what Paul's saying is, look, all I'm trying to tell you is that 
be like Jesus when it comes to your interactions, relationships with your friends and others around you. What then does it look like to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel like Jesus did? So Paul's going to say, all right, so let me get specific. Let me get specific again. Here, here's, here's the way it looks. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. Now, he was already a Jew, but his point here is I ended up, act, when I was with Jewish people, I ended up acting like Jewish people, specifically how? Well, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, right? So I, I ended up taking, even though I'm free from the law of God, the Mosaic law, I actually, when I was hanging around the Jewish people, I didn't smell like bacon. I, I, I didn't, you know, crack open the shellfish because those were against the food laws. Am I free to eat shellfish? Absolutely. But not when I'm with the Jews because they're going to freak out. And I don't want them to freak out. I want them to listen and hear the gospel. And it's just food anyway. Who cares? That I might win those under the law. To those outside the law. Okay, so the Gentiles now. I became this one outside the law. I became like a Gentile, man. My whole life I wasn't allowed to eat these particular foods. And now I'm going out with the Gentiles and we're sitting down to dinner. And they're like pork chop. And you're like, ah. I'm not outside the law of God, he means, but I'm under the law of Christ. In other words, Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament law, and so now he obeys Jesus. So it's not like he doesn't have any law at all. But I do it that I might win those outside the law to the weak, to the guys who think that it's, you know, that eating meat sacrifice to idols is really the thing. To the weak, I became weak. I didn't do it when I was with them. I accommodated that I may win the weak. You see the point. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some of them. Willing to do whatever it takes for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. You guys ever seen a chameleon? This is, Paul's, this is basically Paul's doctrine of chameleoning. And whenever you go to a new setting, you accommodate so that the people can hear the gospel. You don't raise unnecessary obstacles and barriers, stumbling blocks in their way so that they can't get to the gospel. There are not standards that need to be met prior to hearing the gospel. And if you think there are, destroy them. I was in China a number of years ago, got off the plane, driving seven hours north to get to the location. We were actually there. Uh, the government knew we were there. It wasn't a massive big deal. The church that we were visiting was actually a, a, a church that was registered. So there's registered and unregistered churches there. The registered church that we were going to see was led by a group of people, and we had gone to see this registered church and just see the ministry they were doing and that kind of thing. And so when we got up halfway, you know, like four hours into the ride, on the side of the road, the people, the elders from that church came down and drove like three hours down to meet us on the side of the road because apparently there was this amazing seafood restaurant on the side that's like the best in the whole region. These people have nothing, but we sit down at the table and they have, you know, I guess it's a lazy Susan or whatever in the middle that spins around and they have bought basically all the best dishes and they're all laid out there. 
Now, most of it is seafood, right? So most of it is fish. And my, my experience with fish is usually when it's surrounded by chips and battered. Um, theirs was not battered, and it was looking at me. Like, all the fish were looking at me. Now, here's the custom. If you are a pastor from another place, they want to show you high honor. It's an honor-shame society, and so they place you in the privileged seat, and they give you the first bite of all the food. And not just the first bite, but the most treasured part of the food, which is not always what you would treasure in the food. So, in front of me, the, the, the woman is speaking through a translator, and she says to me, please have this be by the fish. Everyone at the table, a, t- a lot of people at the table are looking at me. And I start to grab for the fish and she, she says, no, no, no. And she points at the eyeball. So I leaned over to my friend who was the translator and said, Tim, she's not serious, right? Like this is a big joke. I'm not eating the eyeball. He goes, look, if you don't eat the eyeball, you're going to bring great shame upon them. Okay, they've spent a lot of money on this meal to try to show their honor to you. So, So I looked at that eyeball, and it looked back, (laughs) and I prayed silently in my head a prayer that my father-in-law taught me about missionary work. Lord, I'm going to put it down, and you're going to keep it down. (laughs) So I did. Pop that baby in there, you know, creamy, and... uh, and I was like, oh, through that, spin, here's the next fish. It's a variety of the first one, but it's coated in this different thing. Eyeball? Eyeball, eyeball, eyeball. It's like eating peanut M&Ms. I was all, you know, all the way around. Why do you, well, like, why do you do this? Well, you know this. It's not hard to describe. I mean, when you go to another place, you accommodate to those those people, you don't, I don't want to put anything in the way of them actually honoring the gospel that I'm going to come and proclaim. So you eat this, you eat this, this is Paul's point. You eat this stuff, whether, whether it's going to discomfort you or you're going to be spending some time in the evening later, you know, around the bathroom, you do it. You do, you do it. Become all things to all men in order that you might win literally the more. In fact, he, that's what he says in the end. I, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Like everything I do, I do for the sake of the gospel. That I may share with them in its place. It's a crazy phrase. We get it, Paul. You're trying to do everything for the sake of the gospel. Yes, that I might share in its blessings. Wait a minute, you're, here's his argument. Sacrificial love, right? We just saw it. Sacrificial love is what Jesus did. Those who claim to follow Jesus then show sacrificial love. If I, says Paul, go out and I proclaim sacrificial love and I say that Jesus was rich, became poor, that we might become rich, and that I'm not willing to follow in his way, how can I possibly call myself a follower of Christ? 
I had a friend in, in, in college who went into a fraternity, saw him like a, two weeks after he rushed in the fraternity, he had a bandage around his arm. I said, what happened? And he said, oh, I think I can show you. And he ripped it back and it was, this, it, it was a tattoo of the Greek letters of his fraternity. And I said, that's a cult. And he was like, no, look, basically, if you want to be identified as somebody in this fraternity, you get, you get the tattoo. So that whenever you go anywhere else, somebody later in your life goes, oh my gosh, you're from such and such. And you think, like, it, it's a sign of membership. It's a sign that you are that thing. Guys, do you want to know what the sign, the tattoo is? To show that you're a Christian? They will know that we are Christians by our, our love. Sacrificial love is the sign. Which is his big point, right? So that's the passage. Let me give you three applications of it. Here's the first of them. I think it's pretty clear that Paul would like us to tear down all unnecessary barriers to the gospel. That wherever there are barriers to the gospel in our society, our culture, and even within our subcultures, the idea is not to hold them up for the sake of the praise of others. It's actually to tear them down for the sake of the gospel. Okay, let me give you some examples of what that actually has looked like, both in church history and maybe a little bit today. So in church history, there's a guy named Hudson Taylor. He was a missionary, in fact, to China. Most of the 300 million Christians who are in China today can trace their spiritual lineage somehow to Hudson Taylor. He's a missionary. He took up from England. The rules in those days were, you can go and be a missionary, but don't you dare drop your civilized attitude because that civilized attitude was a sign of your Christianness, right? The gospel frees you from being a savage and turns you into a civilized man. That's what they thought. And so when you go and you preach the gospel to those people, do not give up your dress because your dress is a sign that you are civilized. Your three-piece suit signifies to them, I am living a better life than you. Come to Jesus. So all the missionaries who used to go to China would show up and they would start preaching the gospel in their three-piece suits. There weren't a lot of people in China at the time wearing the three-piece suit. So people would be like, hmm, that's a little odd. And they came to the conclusion, even in those days, that to become a Christian was to become English. Taylor gets there, and he's like, this is weird. It seems to me that if I'm going to have these people hear me better, I probably should start dressing like them. So he does. He starts dressing like them, and people freak out about it. What are you doing? You don't want to denigrate the great words of the Lord by wearing some garbage, savage outfit while you're proclaiming it. He even grew a big pigtail, big long pigtail. You're, you're, you're looking like a woman now. So that you can preach to the heathen? Um. Yeah, actually, that's exactly what he did. He was called uncivilized and blasphemous. But like I said, 300 million Christians today because the man was willing to forego some stupid dress code in order to reach people with the gospel. All right, another one. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. 
one of the greatest English language preachers of all time. British man, he was like, quite honestly, probably the first megachurch pastor ever. This man would stand up and preach and people would flock from all over. The people who would flock from all over, though, were a little bit different than the normal people who would flock. (laughs) When I say normal, church in those days was for the elites. Church in those days was for people who were learned and knowledgeable. And the reason for that was because, you know, again, you don't want to speak in plain language the holy words of God. You got to look the part. You got to dress the part. You got to speak the part. And so you say, dear beloved, your sanctification is dependent upon your supralapsarian views. That's, you know, 30 people might understand what you're saying. The rest are like counting the ceiling, ceiling tiles, right? But that's the way you do it. You don't dumb it down. But 19-year-old Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he enters the pulpit at 19. He stands up, and the first thing he starts doing is speaking in plain language to the people who were there. Everyone came, and by everyone, I mean the kinds of people that nobody else really wanted to come. The miners would come out of the mines, faces covered with soot, come straight to the church and hear Charles Haddon Spurgeon proclaim the gospel using stories and dramatic movements and colorful language and speaking to them about the issues that they have. He had critics, so many in the Essex Standard, right? So the newspaper of that day in April of 1855, This is what the columnist wrote about Spurgeon. He said, his style is that of the vulgar colloquial, varied by rant. All the most solemn mysteries of our holy religion are by him rudely, roughly, and impiously handled. Common sense is outraged and decency disgusted. His rantings are interspersed with coarse anecdotes. He still told stories. <laughs> you guys know what happened when these miners would come in, faces covered with soots? They used to have a saying about Haddon's, Charles Spurgeon's preaching. It used to create the miners' tracks. What they meant by that was these men would be brought to tears by the knowledge of the gospel, and their tears would clear a clean path down their faces because the gospel had done such a profound work in their hearts. All because he was willing to tell a story or two. You think this is not an issue today, dude? Even on Twitter in the last couple of weeks, there's been big fights between people about, well, you shouldn't tell too many stories in the church service. Really? Okay, yeah, the holy words of God, give them the doctrine straight, doctrine superlapsarianism. What are you talking about? It's about people. Why are you trying to build a barrier for for the people? Just think about Jesus for a minute. John chapter 4. Jesus actually is a boundary-breaking guy. He is traveling with his disciples, and usually a Hebrew... Jewish rabbis were very concerned to not step foot in Samaria because yuck. So they'd go around, but Jesus leads his disciples right into Samaria, and then he's like, I'm tired, we need to rest, and they rest by a watering hole kind of in the middle of the day. The disciples leave, so Jesus is there all alone, and a woman 
from Samaria came to draw water in the afternoon. Right, so most of the women were drawing water in the morning because they were the righteous upstanding women. But if you were not one of those righteous upstanding women, you still needed to get water. So you came when the others weren't there. So they wouldn't call you mean names about your sexual proclivities. So she shows up in the afternoon. So you've got the holy rabbi, high and exalted prophet sitting there. He's Jewish and a man and righteous. And here comes the unrighteous Samaritan woman. You're not supposed to talk to women, man. You're not supposed to talk to Samaritans, man. You're not supposed to talk to women like this. So Jesus remained quiet. Now, you got a Coke? His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. If you read that, you're like, oh my goodness, he's all alone. And he's a man talking to a woman. There's so many rules against this. What are you doing? And the Samaritan woman said to him, "Um, maybe you don't know the rules. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman, from Samaria, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus is like, I don't care about all your cultural barriers. I don't really, I don't care. People are going to talk, Jesus. Let them talk. They're going to call you mean names. Sell out. I don't care. Because my little rules and all of the little standards that we set up in order for people to hear the gospel be truly accepted by God are ridiculous. You start where people are, not where you think they ought to be. Let me just diagram it for a second. Here, look. There's Jesus over here, and you are over here, or your friend is over here. What you want is a nice, smooth spot there. No barriers so that they can see Jesus clearly. But what you and I end up doing is we end up saying, yes, but you, you probably need to dress a little better and not have, like, tattoos, Right? Because Jesus, I mean, we want clean, upstanding people. There were Christian colleges in years gone by that were like, don't you dare have long hair, you young man. Well, we don't do any of those. Okay, you better have the right politics, buddy. You didn't vote for that guy? Well, I can't talk to you then. In fact, I'm going to move my family away from you. Because I don't want to mix. Barrier, barrier, barrier. And Jesus is like, all of this is just ridiculous. And Paul's saying, get rid of it. Get rid of it. People are going to talk, though. I know they're going to talk. But our God, who took on human flesh, values sacrificial accommodation. He values sacrificial contextualization. He values sacrificial love for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. So start where people are, not where you think they ought to be. Second, sacrifice for the other is always the right answer. Sacrifice for the other is always 
the right answer. One of the things you should have gotten as we walked through that passage is that Paul's like adamant that laying aside our rights for others and for the gospel is fundamental to following Jesus. It's the mark of following Jesus. He gives you an image, uh, Jesus does, in John chapter 13. He gives you this image of, okay, what is it going to look like? What kind of sacrifice am I talking about in order to love others? The uh, disciples had been walking through the streets of that day. And I need to tell you before I read this passage that the streets of this day were not like the ones we, we walk on today. The streets of those days, uh, if you know, they were oftentimes six-story apartment buildings in the cities in those places that would sometimes fall down or burn to the ground. If you, there's no indoor plumbing. And so like if you have to go to the bathroom at night, you go to the bathroom. And then if you live on the high level, you're not like, I don't want to walk all the way down to the bottom. In fact, the rich people lived on the top, the poor people on the bottom. And the reason for that was because the rich people would dump certain things that went out of their bodies at the middle of the night out the window and they would drop in the middle of the street. Well, I hope the garbage man comes and picks that up. There is one. A lot of flies. A lot of sheep who walk right through the middle of town. That's how they used to get them out sometimes. Lots of animals and going through the middle of town. Animals don't always choose when they want to defecate. So they just do it right there. So look, when you're walking around the town with your open-toed tevas, there's a really good chance that some of that will get on your feet. So he sits them down. The Lord of glory sits them all down. This is why people, when you go into someone's house, would send their slave out and they would wash your feet. It's not something anybody else would do because it stinks. But Jesus, when they get into a room, puts on a slave's garment and then he starts washing their feet. And they're like, what are you doing? You're the king in glory. What are you doing? You're the savior, the Messiah. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? See, you call me teacher and Lord. And you're right, for so I am. But if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Look, I've given you an example that you also should do Just as I have done to you, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You want to know what it looks like to, you want to know what it looks like to, to, to love sacrificially? Push aside all of your rights, get down on your hands and knees as a slave and wash the feet of those who do not deserve it. I have, at every wedding I've ever done, read the same closing story. It is about a man named J. Robertson McQuilkin. He was the president of Columbia Biblical Seminary and had reached kind of his pinnacle in his professional life at that point. Published a lot of books. It was going traveling all over the place and the church, was really becoming a leading voice in the church. And then all of a sudden, he said, I'm resigning. Now, these days, when somebody resigns like that, it's because they're doing it for moral failings or some stupid thing. But for McQuilkin, 
he resigned because his wife had Alzheimer's and he felt like he needed to go home and care for her. So he had to read a statement in front of the student body at the next chapel to explain his shocking retirement. Here's what he said. My dear wife Muriel has been in failing mental health for about eight years. So far, I've been able to carry both her ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibilities at Columbia Biblical Seminary, but recently it's become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she's with me and almost none of the time I'm away from her. It's not just discontent, though. She's filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes in search of me when I leave home. And then she may be full of anger when she can't get to me, so it's clear to me that she needs me now, full time. But the decision was made, in a way, 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health. Till death do us part. So as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it, but so does fairness. She's cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic. There's more. I love Mary. She's a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love and occasional flashes of that wit I used to relish so, her happy spirit and tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration, I don't have to care for her. I get to care for her. It is a high honor to care for so wonderful a person. Who is it in your life that you need to sacrifice for? You say you love them. You, you believe you do. But who is it who needs to see the Jesus kind of foot washing, give up all your rights to serve the undeserving kind of love? What if I don't? I mean, what if I'm like, I don't want to do that? Okay. Last one, finally. Um, sacrificial love is the sign that I'm truly a Christian. Isn't that basically what Paul's argument was in the end? That I might share in its blessings? Like if, if sacrificial love is the tattoo of a Christian and I don't have the tattoo, it's not shown in my life, then what does that say about me? Oh, no, 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 I know you profess it. You have all the words. You even knew what I said when I said superlapsarianism. I know exactly what that is. It's not infralapsarianism. You knew it. But is sacrificial love what people see when you say you love them? I was in uh, Disney World the last week or so. Uh, we went for one day because that is all I can do. 
We've been to Disneyland lots of times before on the West Coast, okay? Here's, here's what Disney World is. It's forking out 500 and something dollars for one day to visit a single park, and there you are standing at the single park, and every time that you are walking through it, you're thinking to yourself, especially me, is this worth 500 bucks? Was that ride worth 500 bucks? Was that ride worth 500 bucks? Was that ride? And one of the things you, you probably know at this point is that, that Disneyland is filled with, with lines, and that if you actually counted up, you, you paid $500 to spend about four or five hours standing in line. And while you're standing in line, anyway, for me, I'm thinking to myself, this is outrageous. How? They're trying to dupe you as well, right? Taking you through the, look at all the different diagrams that we've put up about the ride while you're standing in line for the ride. It's almost like you're in the ride before you're in the ride. Liars. We, listen, we even had one of those, you know, adult Disney friends right? They were helping from our church. They were helping us out by saying, hey, here's what you need to do. Here's the strategy. There are websites on that strategy you mean to take in order so that you don't get so angry for spending so much money to stand in line. So we're following the whole thing. And I, I hate it. You go to the food. Somebody asked me last night, uh, was the food good? And I was like, listen, when you ask that, you're not asking like Chicago is the food good where the range is from amazing to really good. It's Disney scale. So it's like, I need to throw up to passable. But hey, it's going to cost you 25 bucks for it. You know, and you just keep shelling out the money. You need to pay for parking. $25. I'm so livid. And you say, why did you go to Disney World? Why'd you go to Epcot? I love my daughter. That's why. And the reason you go is because you love your daughter. You love your son. You put the dumb ears on because you love them. Do you realize what sacrifice this is? You look like a fool with a dumb rat on your head. You, you, you look crazy. You're losing tons of money, but you will do everything for the sake of that smile. See, I think that if you love Jesus like that, you'd be willing to sacrifice for him like that. We know what we love by how much we're willing to sacrifice for it. So if you want to know if you're genuinely saved, the fruit of the Spirit is Jesus' kind of love. Look, He's shown you how much He loves you. He who is rich became poor that you might become rich. He who is seated in eternal glory, forsake it to be born in a manger and die on a wicked, embarrassing cross with the people he made spitting at him so that you would have access to God and eternal life. Those who say they are followers of that Jesus, know that they are not greater than their master. Little sacrifice for Jesus probably means little love for Jesus. So do you have the right tattoo? 
Let me pray for us. I'm thankful for, uh, well, I, I think the First Corinthians is a delightful book, Lord. It's also irritatingly pointed. But Lord, thank you for the pointedness, right? Thank you for the grace of demonstrating to us the places where perhaps we have not walked in the way of Christ. I pray, Father, actually, I pray, Lord, instead of the church being known for infighting and battles over whose rights get to win out, I pray that the church would actually end up becoming known for a different kind of battle, battles of sacrificial love, where we are trying to outdo one another with how much we can give to one another. May that be the flavor, the kind of grace and love that is exhibited between us and to the world around us, Father. Help us to break all the barriers down so that the gospel might be the shining, beautiful diamond that it really is. Spirit, come and help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information on how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbiblechapel.org. Tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel podcast.